From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that keeps going and going and going. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg, and today's title is Batteries. Hey, Chad. Hey, Mike. How's it going? I'm feeling so much better, Chad. I came down with COVID, Mm. and you may still hear a little bit of it in in my voice here, but... A little gravelly. Yeah, but I feel much better, and I'm trying to raise the pitch of my voice a little bit so that I don't sound so terrible. I'm trying to be up here, but that's actually wearing me out a little bit, so... We'll see how that goes. Okay. You might sort of just be winding down like a battery. Yeah. So a few episodes ago, we did an episode about electric vehicles. We did. And as part of that, we came through a lot of discussions about the batteries inherent in them and what's going on with them. And and just because of time, we had to cut a lot of that stuff out. And mm-hmm. we recognized like, well, maybe we should just have an entire episode about batteries and what they do and why they exist and all this stuff. And so that's what we're doing today. Great. I would say that that's one of my big questions about electric vehicles is the battery technology and in addition to just how it works how to think about issues of their longevity and mm-hmm. how long that battery is going to last. And so, yeah, if we if we get into that, that'd be useful for me. <laughs> awesome. Well, so to start, let's talk about something called voltage, mm-hmm. which is something that you pick up batteries at the store. Voltage is one of the things that are labeled on there, right? I mean, most batteries are one and a half volts, 1.5 volts. So is that like double A batteries? Double A's, triple A's, C, okay. D cells, all that stuff. The other common one is the nine volt battery, and it's mm-hmm. actually in the name that it's nine volts. <laughs> but voltage is the unit that we use to describe. It's the energy necessary to actually push charges around in a circuit. Okay. And so charges are just randomly moving around in in a metal. And so when you apply a voltage, you're actually telling them go in this direction and and do this work. Okay. And, and so then, can, can we ahead. distinguish like a charge? from an electron is, is are those synonymous or how should i be thinking about that ah good so in a metal we are talking about electrons okay so charges are electrons in a metal and so in most electronics and stuff like that that's that is exactly what we're talking about that there's this extra electron that can flow around and we apply a voltage and make electrons move around mm-hmm. in semiconductors you're mostly talking about electrons as well but we have things called holes that i won't get into right now well i feel Um, like we've talked about that in a previous episode like semiconductors yeah okay and so there's this lattice that the electrons can move in Mm -hmm. okay yeah and so that's a great point chad everybody should go back through our entire back catalog and listen to every episode of chris crash and science until you find it (laughs) it's a scavenger hunt we have amazing episodes and you'll learn something (laughs) It's fun and informative. <laughs> but in addition to that, you could also have charges moving through, say, salt water. Because mm. salt water, let's think of table salt, which is sodium chloride, NaCl. Mm-hmm. And just the bonds that NaCl make is that when you put it into water, you know, the salt will just dissolve, right? It'll kind of disappear. It's this crystal form and then it just separates out. And what's happening there is that the water makes the Na and the Cl go on different sides of the the water molecule itself. Okay. And so if you remember your chemistry and the periodic table, Mm -hmm. sodium happens to be far on the left side. It's in the first column. And what that means is that it has one extra electron that's sort of hanging out in a brand new shell. It's sort of the farthest electron of all the electrons that are available there. So does that mean it's somewhat loosely attached relative to the others? Yeah. Okay. We also had a fantastic episode, and this is why everybody should go back to listen to our entire back catalog about the periodic table and how it's sort of like a typewriter. Like you go to the end and then you go back to the beginning 
on the left-hand side and, and you start a new shell and you're filling those in with electrons and so forth. And so because we just started this new shell, it's very loosely bound. And so it's easy to rip that away. Okay. Chlorine happens to be in the second to last column. The last column are the noble gases, which don't react with anything. The next column over is it's missing just one electron to fill up its last shell. Okay, so the left column has an electron that is just starting a new shell. And the second to the right column has a shell that is one electron short of being full. Right. And so and that's so, why you get so much of the salts that you see are from those two columns together, right? Yeah. And there are many different salts. We're most familiar with NaCl just because that is table salt. But mm -hmm. broadly speaking, anything is a salt that has something from that column and the other column. And they make an ionic bond if you want to use the right language and stuff. But I insist that we use the appropriate language. <laughs> but what happens with the salt is that when you get it in water, basically... You know, the Na has this loosely bound electron and the Cl kind of wants that electron. And so when they separate out, the Cl sort of steals that electron. And so now the Cl is slightly negative and we'll often write it as Cl with a little minus sign next to it. And the sodium, we took away an electron. So now it's left behind. It's short an electron, which means it's slightly positive. And so what basically that's because sodium has a certain number of protons. And by removing that electron, now there is one fewer electrons than there are proton yep giving it that positive one charge yep. and then the opposite is true for chloride it's got it's gained an electron so now it has one more electrons than it has protons yeah so it's net negative okay yeah and so it's it's possible with the salt water you can apply a voltage and make these two ions move to separate sides of it and you can actually get electric current to go through a salt water for instance so this is why, the, for instance like you shouldn't take a radio in the bathtub with you or <laughs> or a hair dryer or something like that right they always say beware of electric shock that's because salt water it's interesting actually pure water does not conduct electricity but if you add a, just a little bit of salt it'll conduct pretty well so if i'm taking a bath in distilled water well as soon as you as soon as you get in the distilled water uh, now the salts are coming off your body and then now okay, I'm in impurity. So, yeah. Okay. But to get back to how a current is passing through a fluid in which a salt has been dissolved, did I hear correctly that what you're saying is that the sodium ions are literally going to one side of the chamber and the chloride ions are literally moving to the other side of the chamber? Yeah. They're accumulating? Yeah. I mean, oh, okay. within reason. Not Not all of them. They're not completely okay. separating out. But if I apply one voltage to it, then a certain number of them will kind of pack on either side of it. Okay. And then if I increase the voltage, then more will kind of pack. But Okay. So are we going to get to like how a potato battery works? Because this, this seems like we're starting to talk about some sort of battery where the thing that the current's passing through is not a metal. It's a potato, which has a lot of salty fluid in it. Well, yeah. I mean... We will talk more about this later on. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so just briefly speaking, to make a potato battery, you have to have two different metals. Generally, you, you take like a recipes I've seen, put wire around like a penny or something. So you've got copper on one side, uh -huh. and then they suggest like a galvanized nail and stick it in the other side. And then now this makes a little battery and things like that. And the reason we have to do that will make sense at the end of the episode. So, so keep what, listening. What, what is, what's a galvanized nail? What does that mean? Oh, well, so nails are generally made out of steel or something like that. Okay. Um, but those will rust over time. And so uh -huh. to protect them, what you do is you actually put a, a thin layer of zinc over, over the entire nail. And so then when you you know hammer it in, then you've got this layer of zinc that will not rust as quickly. And eventually that'll wash away and then the nail will 
rust but okay so it's coated with something yeah so you're coating it's it like with... a metal coated with a metal yep is that what anodizing is what's anodizing i've heard of that too this sounds familiar uh so anodizing is is similar in the sense that you are putting on a layer a coating of something but it's actually quite different in the sense that generally when you're anodizing you are taking aluminum and you put it into an electrolyte actually into maybe a salt water or something like that generally people who deal with batteries and so forth they call the salt water that medium they call it an electrolyte and okay. so I'll, I'll probably use that language here since i just did without even so like i was thinking of gatorade <laughs> yeah it's what the body craves or like yeah, right like or pedialyte or something like yeah. that you know yeah and this this is actually good aside here because ultimately what you're doing is you have some sort of a fluid and you can connect a battery to two different paddles and stick two different metals on in either side and connect a battery to it. And what will happen is I've hooked up a battery. I'm applying a voltage. So now I'm trying to get current to go from one terminal to the other. But remember, we actually just talked about this, that how in a metal we have electrons doing all the traveling, but through yeah. the salt water, we have say Na and Cl, right? So if I have one paddle in over on this one side, all these electrons are trying to move from there to the other paddle, but that's not what's carrying the electricity through the salt water, right? It's the ions, it's the Na's and the Cl's that are actually doing all the, that movement. Okay. So in order to jump from electrons to some ions and then back to electrons to complete the circuit, you have to have some chemical reactions going on. Oh. And so on one side of it, you have something called an oxidation reaction. This is where you give up one or more electrons. So this would be over on the end where I'm trying to dump electrons into the fluid. Uh -huh. So that's called an oxidation reaction. And it's called that because oxygen, as we've actually talked about in other episodes that people should definitely check out. <laughs> <laughs> Oxygen loves to grab electrons, right? I mean, this is actually in some biology episodes we've talked about, right? That, uh -huh. that the role of oxygen, the reason we breathe oxygen is because in the chemistry of our bodies, we need something to grab electrons at the very end of the process. Mm -hmm. And oxygen is very good at that. And so this reaction is called an oxidation process, even though it doesn't have to involve oxygen. It's just sort of the most common type of reaction of that. Okay. Um, and so, but the, the general phenomenon of losing electrons is called oxidation. Yep. And it got that name because oxygen is good at hoovering up those free electrons? Yes. Okay. I learned this as Leo says Gur. Losing electrons is oxidation. Gaining electrons is reduction. And I, I literally have to think through that every single time. Yeah. Yeah. And so you just brought up the second reaction that has to happen then, right? So on the one side, we're trying to move the electrons into the fluid. And so that's the oxidation. But then to complete the circuit, we have to have it on the other side. And that reaction is called a reduction. And that reduction is where you're gaining one or more electrons, mm -hmm. where the metal itself is gaining it. I have to have this ion move over to that other side and then have it give up an electron so that it can complete the circuit to the metal. Okay. With these reactions, you almost always have both. Mm -hmm. So you have both oxidation and reduction happening at the same time. And so because both of them have to happen, oftentimes people just call this a redox reaction. Because if you have reduction happening, you almost certainly have oxidation happening elsewhere in this mm -hmm. cycle. So anyway, if I were to hook up a battery, then the positive terminal is going to provide electrons. And so the metal that reacts with that is going to oxidize. Okay. And the negative terminal then is going to take those electrons away in order to complete the circuit. So that's going to be the opposite reaction of reduction. And so is the is the terminal that is being oxidized, does the losing of these electrons come with sort of like a, I don't know, a loss of the material itself? 
Yes. So yeah. And so this literally is happening. Like if I took two copper wires or if I took two pennies and when copper oxidizes, it turns green and it, it gets caught all gross and stuff like that. Like the Statue of Liberty, mm-hmm. not that she's gross, but <laughs> it, it'll get all green and stuff. And then the other one will have the opposite reaction happening. So it will actually get really shiny and clean because any corrosion that had happened to that penny just sitting in my pocket will be undone by that reaction. Mm. And so you'll see both of those going on there like that. Anyway, anodizing something, getting back to your original question here, right. um, is this chemical reaction is happening. So if you do this with aluminum, though, the aluminum will react and will oxidize. And when aluminum oxidizes, it forms aluminum oxide, but it's probably better known as the gemstone sapphire. Hmm. And so if you are anodizing a piece of aluminum, what you're literally doing is you're building up an insulating layer, like a rock layer to Hmm. protect the surface of the aluminum. So it makes it really hard and less likely to scratch or do anything like that. So So it's it's literally like a really thin layer of sapphire. Yeah. Really thin layer of rock. That's, huh, that's really cool. Okay. And so does that have an insulating effect on the metal? Mm-hmm. Okay. So in a way it's kind of, as you said, it's similar to galvanizing in that it's a layer of something being laid down on a metal driven mm-hmm. by sort of an electrical current or, or something. But the difference is one results in like a galvanized nail, which is metal on metal. So it still right. conducts current, mm-hmm. but anodizing is like an insulator around a metal. Right. And it just happens to be that the reaction that the aluminum makes, makes it be this insulating material okay if we had other metals in this bath or whatever different things would happen oh okay yeah interestingly that's why back in like the 70s people were trying to wire houses with aluminum using aluminum wire and stuff like that Mm. and what they found was that that's a bad idea because what will happen is the aluminum will eventually oxidize and it will grow this insulating layer and so then in order to make good contact sometimes it would have to arc across and so a lot of houses (laughs) were just burning down because they were using aluminum wiring well that makes sense i mean yeah i've done various wiring projects and it's copper isn't it that's in those wires yeah okay anyway so this felt like a a horrible aside and so i know our listeners are like oh the crisscrossing science this is what they do right (laughs) right get back to the batteries (laughs) well it it turns out actually this was fortuitous because this process of having to go through an electrolyte and so forth that actually is important for making a battery so so let's actually do a little bit of history here so the guy who first invented the first battery his name was alessandro volta and are the chances and in fact yes the reason we called the energy and all that the voltage is named after alessandro volta it turns out he had a bet with a guy named galvani i don't remember his first name but galvani was a biologist and he found that he would dissect frogs and he would try to pin the frog legs and they would start kicking even though they were clearly dead animals and so galvani had this theory that maybe just life has just a built-in energy to it and maybe we could use dead bodies to whatever. He, he was going crazy with it. And Volta was like, I think you're wrong. I think it, the issue here is that you had, when you were pinning the legs, you actually used two different materials. And so Volta realized that having the two different metals was actually the key to making the frog leg kick. Okay. 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 Let me think, let me think about this for a minute. So first, if I had to guess, I would just say that Galvani's first name was probably Luigi. <laughs> Second, Luigi. <laughs> Second, so because I teach biology, I know a little bit about what's happening at the cellular level. And it strikes me that the fluid 
in like the muscle tissue and the neurons and such, it's a salty fluid. It's an electrolyte fluid, mm -hmm. right? And so it's setting up the conditions where a current could flow. Mm -hmm. And I know that muscle contractions are caused by basically a little current happening and causing that contraction. Yeah. So that's what he was observing. There's no way they could have necessarily known this at the time. They didn't have the technology, but what you said earlier about having two different metals seems to suggest that the kind of metal must be important here for, for this to have been observed. Was he using different pins of different metals? Yeah. And I don't know why they were different metals, but that's Sloppy. exactly what he was doing. Okay. And Volta realized that if you have two different metals that are connected by some sort of electrolyte, that those metals themselves would create a voltage. He didn't use that word, obviously, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> it would create a me. <laughs> would create a meage that would give the energy to kick the leg and so he actually made a first battery by having alternating layers of two different metals that were separated by frog legs no he changed that up he he actually separated them by he had some cloth that he soaked in salt water in brine so he had a little layer of one metal a briny cloth a different metal briny cloth the first metal again briny cloth and on okay. Okay. And that's how he made the first battery. And so that itself is enough to set up a situation where charge is going to move. Yeah. Okay. What is it about the different metals? There must be something about the two different kinds of metals that causes a current to flow between them. It seems like what you're suggesting is if the pins that Galvani used were both made of the same metal or the battery that Volta made, he wouldn't have gone like, copper salt copper salt copper salty layer right it, you right. were very specifically saying it was copper salty fluid other metal so what is it about those two metals and and actually the the fluid is also important in this whole thing as well but so okay. the metals itself let's talk about something called work function so Volta like was a department meeting or one of the like a mandatory yeah. social event sometimes they offer wine or beer but usually it's just painful you know <laughs> <laughs> I don't see how that has anything to do with it, but go ahead. <laughs> well, so it's very easy for charge to move within a conductor. Basically, all metals, when we think of a metal, we're, we're thinking about an atom that has a bunch of electrons in different shells, and it has one more electron that's pretty easy, loosely bound, and is easily be shared with its neighboring atoms. The outermost electron doesn't actually care, you know, that it's orbiting around Bob, okay. you know, this nucleus, right? All it cares about is that energetically, it has to be a certain distance away from a nucleus. Okay. And so if you've got a, a whole lattice of, say, copper, then this electron doesn't care that it's around this one nucleus. It's perfectly happy to jump over to the next nucleus and the next one and the next. And so that's how conduction happens inside of a metal. Is that because the nuclei of these different atoms are close enough together that their orbits are overlapping sufficiently? Yeah. And, and that kind of allows the electron to sort of like orbiting around the different atoms. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Got that. Okay. That makes sense. And so that's very easy to do. Actually, if I have just a hunk of metal, that's what the electrons are doing. They're just randomly moving. Now they're not all moving in one particular direction. Some are going left and some are going right so that it's all in equilibrium. And that's why we have to apply a voltage to make them all move in one direction. Okay. So that's easy to do. But if I want to pull electrons out of the metal, that takes work. So there's a certain amount of energy that I have to use to actually pull it completely out of the conductor. And it just happens that every metal has a different amount of energy that is required to pull it out of the metal itself. Okay. That's uh, called the work function. I and assume. that's what we call the work function. Yes. Uh, okay. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just all the details of like, okay, well, I've got this structure of this many protons and this these shells of electrons, and it's just really how far away is this one and, and so forth. So every element mm-hmm. is different. But it turns out that if I put two metals in contact with each other, then they will try to reach some equilibrium where it would take the same amount of work to rip an electron from either one of them, right? Because it's easy to move an electron from within this one or within that one. So if if I have them working together, then it shouldn't matter if I pull it off of metal one or metal two, you know, out of the copper or out of the zinc, for instance. And so if I try to rip an electron from one particular one, then they're all moving around. And so they have to have the same work function together as they did. So let me me ask a, a question. So are we talking, should I be thinking about this as like, I've got a tiny little piece of copper and I just stick right next to it a tiny little piece of zinc. Okay. And so now these two pieces of metal are just stuck together, but I can still see that they're two different pieces of metal just stuck together. Right. And so now is that what I'm thinking about? So globally, this entire thing now has the same work function. Are we yes, talking about a situation or would it matter if I melted them both down and poured them together so that their atoms were all jumbled together and now it was like what do we call that is that an alloy or something some sort of alloy yeah so i would think of that as being slightly different maybe i'm just muddying the waters yeah but so let's think of it as them just side by side since that's what our batteries are are doing as well got it okay and so what has to happen then is if it's easier to pull them out of say the zinc than it is to pull it out of the copper then some of the electrons from the copper will actually move into the zinc just to sort of make them equilibrialize. Okay, they kind of get drawn over because of that difference in work function and they get drawn over until the point that collectively together they're all at the same work function. Yeah, one metal will raise its work function and the other will lower its work function until they are reaching an equilibrium. Okay. And so that literally means that charge is moving from one to the other. Okay. Now, what we can do, though, is if we separate them out and have an electrolyte in between them, then that can help us store that energy. So having the electrolyte in between them makes them want to push electrons from one to the other just because the work functions want to reach a, a mutual level. Mm-hmm. But by having an electrolyte in between them, that means we have to have these chemical reactions. And so then all that energy is stored sort of in between the two metals. And that allows us to store it so that we can use it in other ways later on. Mm-hmm. And so to have okay. a battery, you have to have two different metals and you have to have some sort of something in between those metals that will allow them to store that energy within the fluid. So it's surprising, like you wouldn't think that the frog's mm-hmm. leg itself was particularly important or that the cloth of brine is important, but that actually is where all the energy is really being stored within a battery. Okay. And so, yeah, so this wouldn't happen if you just had like a piece of zinc and a piece of copper sitting on a table next, not touching, but separated from each other. Right. Okay. If you actually put them in contact, immediately charge would jump from one to another. But if we had them separated by some sort of electrolyte, then so generally what's happening then is you, you store them there. And then when you connect, say a light, then the charges can move through the light to get to the other side and then complete the circuit and complete the chemical reaction. Okay. So that is what a battery is. And so, for instance, alkaline batteries, we talked about 9-volt batteries and AA's and AAA's and all that stuff. Those have two different metals in them. And slowly what's happening then is that those two metals are just having chemical reactions and are just corroding away. And so that's why batteries die, ultimately, 
hmm. is that just gradually over time, the one metal that's oxidizing will just rust, basically. And hmm. then and with these batteries, like you never actually use all of the energy stored in there. Generally, what happens then is you're you're building up sort of this thick layer of resistance that makes it impossible to use. You know, it's hard for the charges to actually get through. And because hmm. like the surface area of that little bit of metal is getting covered over. Yeah. Okay. And so it's effectively getting more resistance over time and and you are using up a lot of the energy as well. But basically what you're doing is you're corroding that one metal. Okay. And typically, you know, so for instance, if you bought a nine volt battery, what's happening then is like if you buy it new and if you actually measured it, you would actually measure that it has like usually about 9.6 volts is what it starts with. And then as you're using it, then that voltage will slowly drop. And okay. most electronics, once you get to about like eight and a half volts, then they'll send you a message saying like, oh, this battery's dead. You should switch mm -hmm. it. So that's really how a battery goes. Like students are often surprised when I say, well, a nine volt battery probably doesn't have exactly nine volts in it uh -huh. because it starts out higher than that. And then it gradually is dying from there. And so it's literally it, it has fewer volts by the time it's usable life is over. Right. And, yeah. you know, nine volt batteries, my experience with nine volt batteries is typically I'm on a ladder changing it from a beeping fire alarm. Yeah. And because I can't help myself, I'll take the battery and just sort of touch it to my tongue to see if it's actually dead. <laughs> and I always get a little zap. I mean, it's not as vigorous as when I do that with the new battery that I put in. Yeah. But it sort of is related to what you were saying is that the nine volt battery still has a lot of voltage left in it. Yeah. It's just not quite enough, I suppose, to power whatever is happening in my stupid fire alarm. Well, and, and we should actually talk about that when you stick it on your tongue like that. Um, <laughs> your tongue is actually acting as the electrolyte in that case. Uh -huh. So you are sending current through your tongue. Uh huh. And that's it's not really a zap. It's more that you get a sort of a bitter taste in your mouth. Uh huh. But that, again, is because we have these chemical reactions happening, the redox reactions at the two interfaces there. Uh -huh. So you you are corroding the metal on your tongue like that. And so that's what the, <laughs> the bad taste is that you get. Okay. And so, oh, so now we can go back to your question about the potato battery. Oh, good. And so what's happening with that is that you still have, it's the same rules, right? You have to have two different metals. That's why I suggested a penny and a galvanized nail. So then the potato itself has fluid in it. The potato itself is the electrolyte. And so that's how you're building the battery in that case. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so those batteries that we just talked about are what we call alkaline batteries. And they'll eventually just corrode to a point that they're dead and you throw them away uh -huh. or you recycle them and somebody then throws it away. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how those <laughs> things actually work, but. Well, I mean, there must be little tiny bits of salvageable metal in there if you were so inclined. Yeah. Well, certainly I, I would suspect that the one terminal is still pretty clean. That mm -hmm. is just the one being oxidized that is in really bad shape. But you could still, even then, it's the outside of that is bad. So you could still melt down the rest of it and reuse it. So mm -hmm. now you've probably heard of rechargeable batteries, though. Definitely. Probably the rechargeable ones that you've heard of would be like lead acid batteries. Uh -huh. These are like in cars and things. It's in normal cars, it's the, the big square batteries. Uh -huh. The nickel cadmium are rechargeable and are lithium ion, which are sort of the most popular now. In these cases, it's possible to actually reverse the corrosion process. So whatever the chemistry is happening on the oxidation side, if you were to apply a voltage high enough going the other direction, you could actually reverse some of those chemical reactions and it would sort of revitalize it. And so that kind of has the effect of resetting the battery, I guess? Yeah, but even with these, after you do it multiple times, you are still doing a chemical reaction on the one surface. Mm. And so, you know, it starts out, let's say it's a nice smooth metal when you first get a brand new battery. Mm -hmm. And when you're using it, then you are corroding 
part of that surface. And then we want to recharge it. So we're undoing that chemical process. But these metal bits are not getting back in exactly where they were to start with. They were all nice and smooth and orderly. But then when you're doing chemical reactions with it and then try to replace it, they're not getting back exactly where they were before. And so now the surface is getting rougher and rougher and rougher over time. And eventually that's when even rechargeable batteries, they will die as well. Mm -hmm. Because even when you reverse the charge... And so you're, I guess, doing that corrosion in the opposite direction and, and the rebuilding up of the pole that is normally getting corroded during use. My guess is it wouldn't be happening in as nice, a smooth and a machined kind of surface way. Right. My cartoon of it would be sort of like you've got a block of ice and then you make it into a snow cone. Right. So, you know, you could scrape it on top and then throw it back on there. It's still ice, but it's mm-hmm. it's now all fluffy and stuff. Yeah. OK. Yeah. That. That tracks. Okay. And so eventually they will stop working. And then again, you could just throw it away or you should try to recycle it in some way, because Uh even then some of the metals could be removed from it and recover and maybe remelt it and reuse it in some fashion. Okay. And so the last thing I kind of want to talk about with all this stuff is how can we make things last longer and how can we treat our batteries better? Yeah. I feel like there is a lot of lore and mythology around this issue. Like people have different strongly held opinions about how long you should charge things. You know, you should always have your thing on a charger for as long as possible, get everything up to 100%. And the next time you can possibly do it, charge it back up to 100%, right? Keep your batteries full all the time. It really depends on the type of batteries you have. Okay. And so that is probably where some of the confusion is. Like Uh if you have nickel cadmium rechargeable batteries, those do need to be fully discharged and then fully charged up all the way. Otherwise you will build up layers specifically around the areas that you're using that for whatever reason that when you're discharging it, then if you're only using a little bit of it and then charge it up and use that same little bit, that little bit will get corroded and won't be able to hold a charge anymore. Okay. So nickel cadmium. And so would those be commonly found as like a rechargeable double a batteries and things like that yeah yeah and that's good to know and i would also say like power tools and stuff like that at one time i I oh it's hard to know you know you have to kind of look it it'll say it on the battery sure okay and so with those yeah you should not just always leave them plugged in because they will just die the battery will stop working quite a bit faster huh okay Uh, But most rechargeable batteries nowadays, the materials they're using don't have the same problem. And so that's Mm. not a good recommendation anymore. Mm. And in fact, the biggest issue with storing things is the temperature. As you know, like chemical reactions happen faster at higher temperatures. Mm -hmm. And that's why like in in chemistry classes and stuff like that, you always have the Bunsen burners and whatnot, right? You're, Mm -hmm. You're trying to heat something up so that the reactions happen faster. And so just in general, what you should try to do is to not overheat your batteries as much as possible. Okay. Just because at higher temperatures, you're going to have more of these reactions. And then the more reactions you have, the more likely you're going to have a rough surface. And then the faster it'll just stop working. So like my car, for instance, as we talked about in previous episodes, I drive an electric vehicle. And if the temperature gets up too high, even if I'm not driving, you know, I will hear like a fan kick on trying to cool it back down. Mm. And it's just trying to protect the batteries. It's not like it's trying to make the inside comfortable for me. It's just trying to keep the batteries going well. Mm. And so with things like that, like it is better to park in the shade. And especially this summer, we've had just really, really hot days. You want to try to keep it as cool as possible just to prolong the batteries as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Some other ways to keep it from overheating 
is to not charge it up and keep it charging forever. Okay. It turns out if you try to go to 100% and keep charging it and keep charging it, that energy has to go someplace. Uh-huh. And so if you're not careful about it, that energy will just heat up the battery, basically. Excuse so, me a moment while I unplug the charger from my laptop. There we go. <laughs> yeah, so you should not sit at 100% and just use it all the time. And yeah, so for a laptop, you should actually be unplugged every once in a while, which I'm terrible about. I don't really do that very often. Yeah. But if you go to zero frequently, that also will cause issues because for whatever reason, you're at the bottom of the barrel, you're kind of causing some extra reactions to happen that would not normally do that. And so that will also degrade the quality of your batteries over time. Okay. Uh, so typically, a good recommendation for most modern batteries would be to keep your charging somewhere between 20% and 80%. Hmm. Yeah, so it turns out most of your phones will try to adapt to whatever your natural behavior is. So for instance, my wife's phone, she always plugs it in every night when she goes to bed. And so it's now learned like, okay, well, you wake up at six. So if you actually watch it trying to charge, it'll charge very quickly until about like 80% or so. And then it'll slow way down until about 6 a.m. And then it'll charge it all the way up to 100%. That's pretty clever. Yeah. For me, I typically will charge it and then unplug it before I go to bed. I don't think I'd be able to sleep if my phone <laughs> were <not> plugged <laughs> in. I feel like I'm going to wake up and it's going to be dead and I won't be able to. Yeah. And then like my car, for instance, it tells me that I should set my maximum voltage to a certain point. So I have it set right now. It will only charge up to 80% and then mm. it will stop. And hmm. basically when I mean stop for both the phone and the car is that it'll make it so that the energy is being dumped somewhere other than in the batteries. It's back in the charger or something like that so that you're not warming up the batteries themselves. And so if you're going to go on a long trip though, and that an extra 20% would be useful, can you override that? Yeah, I can okay. reset it to 100%, but then it'll send me a warning of like, you don't want to do this all the time. And I'm like, yep. It's okay. I'm going on a long trip. It's fine. I so. know, Elon. <laughs> Get out of my face. Gah, okay. Yeah. Well, cool. Thanks, so that's Mike. everything you would ever want to know about batteries. Yeah. And we got to how a potato battery works. Yeah. I, I, I suspect that's that you're thinking about powering your house. Yeah. I think that's a hard way to go, but uh, good luck to you. Yeah. Well, we're going to switch to all LED lights. So. <laughs> I'm getting off the grid. I'm all potatoes. <laughs> it's my potato array <laughs> this episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of linfield university rodeo ortega wrote our theme music if you like this episode or others like it you should subscribe to the podcast that way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available while there leave a comment and a rating and that'll help other people find our podcast if you have questions that you would like us to address email us at crisscrossingsite.com all one word all lowercase until next time thanks for listening 